0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week I have a very special guest, and I know I say that every week and everybody gives me grief about it, but I really have a very special guest. Jeremy Siegel, professor at Wharton uh, School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. A quick, funny story. Um, So, I've done television and I've been on the other side of the debate from Professor Siegel over the years. And, you know, I always kind of scratched my head. Yeah, yeah, Stocks for the Long Run is a pretty good book. It's now in its fifth printing, and there are millions of them out there. And he's consistently the top ranked professor at Wharton. But on TV, he always seems to, you know, he, I, I I'm wholly unimpressed with his television appearances and and what he says and and I've been pursuing him to do the show for a while and we just couldn't get the schedules right when he's he's in Philadelphia most of the time. We finally got him into New York this week and it was one of those situations with which based on his his appearances that I've seen him previously, I mean, I've seen his writings and they're usually fantastic. But his television appearances were always, like, uh, not the greatest thing going. And this experience of having him here for the podcast uh, was really interesting because it made me think that the television appearances he does are just completely the wrong format for him. A guy like him who's that informed, that knowledgeable, that intelligent, and that articulate, you can't give him 12 seconds for a soundbite. He needs a little time to flesh out an answer. And so I guess I – look, I know who Professor Siegel is. I know who the Wizard of Wharton is. I just came into the podcast expecting, oh, this will be a decent podcast. And I have to tell you, he blew my doors off. He just basically so enthusiastic and so articulate, and we really had so much fun talking about all this stuff – I had a great time, and I think those of you who may not know Professor Jeremy Siegel well will also have a really good time um, listening to this. For those of you who are fans of stocks for the long run and or know Professor Siegel, you're going to enjoy this also. He, he says a few things that he, I don't believe, has ever said before publicly, and, and it was just a fascinating conversation. So without any further ado... My conversation with Professor Jeremy Siegel. You mentioned Chicago. So yeah. it was born in Chicago, ended up in Columbia, MIT, then across the river to Cambridge for a year postdoc, and then back to Chicago. How, what brought you to
2: Wharton from Chicago? It was very interesting. So I was in my fourth year. Uh, I was assistant uh, professor of, uh, of uh, business economics and I got a call from a colleague, uh, one a person, uh, uh, Tony Santamero, who, by the way, was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Philadelphia after he left Wharton. But at that time, he was in Wharton. He called me up and said, Jeremy, I need uh, I need another macro person here. Uh, would you consider coming to Wharton? And I went to Wharton, and they offered me a very, very attractive job. Even though I like Chicago a lot, I decided to... Uh, to settle there at, at the Wharton School. And, and now you're known as the Wizard of Wharton. You've been there
1: for <laughs> how long? This is long? my 40th year. That's amazing.
2: It is. I am amazed
1: myself sometimes. when <laughs> I. And <laughs> you're going to stay for how long? Are you going to go for the full
2: 50? You uh, do half the well, I don't know. Ac- actually, um, they have a very good program. If before 70, you can do a reduced load. I have one under- honors undergraduate class after teaching... I've counted, Barry. I've taught over ten thousand students in the forty-four years wow. I've been teaching. Yeah. that's amazing. Over ten thousand students. So I decided I'm gonna gonna take it a little easier, and uh, I just have an honors undergraduate class, which I love. Uh, they're very uh, unbelievably smart at Wharton, and uh, so I'll be on reduced teaching for a few years, probably four or five years, and then you know settle back uh, after that. So, so let's jump right into it. So you mentioned you're a macro
1: guy. Yeah. How significant is the macro economy to people's
2: portfolios? Oh, yeah. Well, very significant. Uh, I mean, I take a look. Just take a look at the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, produced the worst decline in GDP since the Great Depression and not- uh, uh, coincidentally, <laughs> accidentally, the worst bear market since the Great Depression. So, you know, business cycles, economic health, that, you know, that's all inflation. Wow, that's really all about bonds and stocks and markets. So let me throw a curveball at you. Yeah. If people are,
1: we, we mentioned stocks for the long run, if people are supposed to be invested for the long run, why should they care about macroeconomic wobbles? Why should they even care about a giant financial crisis? Here it is. It, the crisis began sometime in 08. It bottomed in March 09. Correct. We're already above the pre-crisis highs of 07. If you just put it away until you retire you know and what? don't look at That's,
2: it. That is true. If you can be patient and just put it in you know, uh, indexed fund mm-hmm. and let it ride and don't panic when things go bad. Um, you know, I, I I think you will do very very well uh so that's where you're that's where so you're buddy... in, in a way, you know if you're if you're just a buy and hold person, uh I guess that's all you have to do.
1: All right, uh, well thank you so much and we're uh we're leave, <laughs> like from... right <laughs> <laughs> so so let me ask you um a number of people yeah. including your your buddy Professor Bob Schiller have, yeah. have been saying stocks are expensive and yeah. there are other people saying, the technology stocks and venture capital
2: stocks and private equity are in a bubble. What What's your perspective well, on that? First, let's talk about a bubble.
1: the
2: mm-hmm. Nasdaq is what thirty now. On the uh, yeah, maybe past earning. I don't know around. P E of uh, P E of the S and P five hundred is about sixteen. Yeah, no, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you Nasdaq, and I'm gonna tell you why I have to do Nasdaq at thirty because in March of 2000 it was 600. <laughs> so, <laughs> that means that means no earnings essentially. Uh, you know and so I if you take a look at a graph um, and, and by the way you know I actually I, you know I find that on Bloomberg a graph of PE ratios on Nasdaq and it just goes like this and then collapses like this and I tell people now that's a bubble. You're
1: listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week Professor Jeremy Siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run, professor at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. Previously, we were talking about the impact of the macro economy on stocks. But trying to time the two, trying to correlate the two is very challenging. And in fact, um, you mentioned uh, indexers. Vanguard, the big indexing shop, did a study and they could not find a correlation between stock returns and macroeconomic news releases. How do you reconcile the two, at least from a timing perspective?
2: Well, you know, there's that famous Samuelson quote that the stock market has predicted like 11 out of the last five recessions. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, one thing we know, the market always goes down in a recession, but it often goes down when there isn't a recession. There's a lot of false alarms mm-hmm. with with the market. but. Um, uh, you know, I I think the accumulation of events. I mean, again, let's let's go back to the crisis, uh, the Lehman Brothers uh, uh, collapse, collapse. The stresses in those markets. I mean, it it just kept on moving into the market, and, and everyone saw the economic fallout of that. And you fell sixty five percent from October of uh, two thousand seven until March. 2009. Now, in my lifetime, I'd never had seen that. Uh, My parents lived through 1929 32, where the decline was 85 to 90%, the worst in in world history. And that also was the worst economic contraction. So, uh, again, it's very hard to predict these contractions. Mm -hmm. We can see them after a fact, but there's no question. That you know the market is behavior is is linked to those contracts. Uh, clearly,
1: when the economy slows, profits slow, and when profits slow, and they investors are, are less willing to pay up for stocks. They're paying a multiple. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's um let's ask the the question: How closely should investors follow the macroeconomic background? Is it important to their day-to-day holdings? Is it important for their long-term portfolios? What should mom and pop do with this just
2: firehose of economic news that comes out every week, every month? Well, you know, I was reflecting on what I'd said in in the first section, like, oh, just buy and hold. Um, I've gained a greater appreciation that it is important to look at valuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're going to talk about P.E. ratios. You know, they average around 15. But, you know, in March of 2000, when you were at the peak of that dot com bubble and the Nasdaq was selling at five, six hundred times earnings and, and 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 it was crazy. That's a time to be lighter in stocks. Now, the interesting thing to say the least. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people said, well, Jeremy, you know, you. Well, what I said, it's very important what I said. I said tech stocks were crazy. I said the non-tech sector wasn't. I recall Uh, that. People have given you grief about, well, he missed
1: 2000 But I remember you warning very clearly, and you're known as a buy and hold long-term guy, and I saw you on TV saying, hey, the tech stocks has just gone off the rails. Yes. That sector of the, the market is just completely unhinged and i remember kind of saying wow if he thinks this is pricey he's a buy and hold guy yeah
2: it's got to really be pricey you know yeah the the uh, you know the march 10th which was the high march 14th i had an lead op-ed piece in wall street journal big cap tech stocks are a sucker's bet and i looked at the biggest tech stocks: Yahoo, EMC, AOL. Uh, you know, Sun, m- Microwave, I'm sorry, Oracle. None, of those, none
1: of those names ring
2: a bell. Yeah, they were all <laughs> selling at you know 200, 300, 500, 600 I said this is absolutely crazy. And I said that. I mean, that was that. What I said, listen, you know, I'm a bull on the market, and I think the rest of the market isn't really all that overvalued. But you've got to get out of these.
1: That and that's an unusual statement from you. Yeah, so very unusual. So so you said earlier that the market is slightly elevated in slight value. But how do you how do you contextualize that given that rates are at zero and the ten year is paying two point one percent? Yeah.
2: Well that's that's also very important. And that's one reason why, even though we're slightly elevated, I mean, if you take a look at what times earnings you are, yeah, we're about eighteen um, times earnings. This was a bad year. I mean, the the oil collapse,
1: energy sector, the
2: energy sector, dispersed. and and the dollar going higher. Uh, you know, I have people I talk to. They said that that could have clipped thirteen bucks off of the S and P earnings. So that you know that that's a huge chunk. Uh, you know, and a lot of people are saying, you know, if we don't get a repeat of that, and I don't mean it goes back, but just don't repeat it. People are talking about 120 to 125 next year, and by the way, that puts us at 16, 16 and a half times earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, not not terribly unreasonable. Not to you know, in a low, extraordinarily low interest rate world, that margin between. What's called the valuation of stocks and bonds is still very much greater than the historical average. It's called the equity risk premium, and economists have written about that a long time. If you go through all of history, it's about 3 to 3.5% a year that stocks are over bonds. Now, when I look ahead, I'm looking at around 5%. and uh, that's, that's
1: the premium you, you you pay for stocks. That's what future returns of stocks versus
2: low returns. That, return that is the expected. So basically, after inflation, I see around a six percent uh, return on stocks going forward, a little less than the six point seven, the historical average. But what do you got on the tips? On I mean, we're looking at real after inflation. Nothing. You got, no, <laughs> Yeah, you get fifty basis points on the ten year, little over one on. On the 30 years, so you're looking, that margin, 6 to 1, is that 5%. And that is a greater margin in favor of stocks than the long-run historical average. So, so let's talk a little bit about your friend, Professor Bob mm-hmm. Schiller
1: of Yale. People may not realize this. You guys are lifelong friends. Absolutely. You met at MIT.
2: Is that right? First year at MIT, the first week of MIT. We went, with, went to graduate school together uh, in economics and we hit off with the first year at MIT. That was 1967. My God, I'm looking. That's 48 years ago, uh, almost getting to our 50th anniversary. Wow, that, that's absolutely. And as we've been very, very close friends. He was at Penn when I was uh, there. Uh, he stayed another 10 years before going to Yale. And so now, of course, he's at Yale University. So in the last
1: 30 seconds, um, let's just briefly talk about you guys are actually
2: long-term family friends. Yeah, you, you, your family vacation vacations. together, right? When uh, the Poconos at the Jersey Shore, we visit each other. We, you know, we we both have two boys uh, as sons, and uh, uh, we, we've had a, a wonderful relationship.
1: This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My special guest this week is Professor Jeremy Siegel. He teaches macroeconomics at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. We were discussing earlier, you're a long-term friend of Professor Bob Schiller. Yes. Who is known for a number of things, one of which is his cyclically adjusted P-E ratio, better known as the CAPE ratio. Absolutely. Which has shown that
2: stocks are extremely overvalued. What, what is your take on CAPE? Well, you know, it's very interesting because I've, I've been looking and examining CAPE for a long time and and this is very this is basically my conclusion um cape has done a fantastic job at forecasting 10-year returns until the last 10 years when i think it has gone off the rails why is that now why has it, it gone is off not the rails? bob's fault <laughs> that it's gone off the rails what has happened now, remember he goes all the way back to 1871 where we have earnings in and Bob, both bob and i love to work with long-term series he goes all the way back and you know and 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 looks at that in the 1990s fasb the financial accounting standing board started changing the way firms do their accounting now, every, Stock options number stop one. options but particularly mark to market uh-huh. that never used to be the case you never used to write down until you sold Right. Then you would record either a gain or a loss. What they did said is you got to mark down whether you sell or not. Now what has happened as a result is in the last two recessions. Now the ninety, uh, the the two thousand one two was a relatively mildest recession. Of course, the the next one was the deep crisis recession, produced a tremendous drop in earnings that were way exceeded what we had seen in prior recessions. And that was an asset balance sheet-based drop, It was an not f- an economic drop. Not the uh, an operating drop, which is what they used to record previously. So in other it words, took- the
1: holdings of companies, even though it was a temporary drop in, in asset value, they had it in market, right. and that
2: shows up as a giant drop in- uh... So what you got, and, and particularly that, that that jumped out at me, because actually the drop in earnings- recorded in the 2009 recession, was many times worse than in the 1930s. And again, we have 140 years of history. And I said, just a minute here. I mean, yeah, this was bad, but you know- it wasn't 1929 In 20, 1929 to 32, we had a 25% drop in GDP. We only had about a 6% drop in the last one. And yet the earnings, in, and then I, I discovered, yes, it's the mark to market. All these firms started writing down all right. their uh, uh, assets and taking it into earnings as they were mandated to do. Now, the effect of that, very simply, is that you have, in 2008, 2009, almost zero earnings. Right. It's down 90%. That's right. The- it's that's crazy. That is, that's in the denominator. Don't forget, Bob takes the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, takes the simple average of the last 10 years. Right. No waiting, no other adjustments are done. So for two years, we've got almost a zero in there, a very low l- number. And when that's in the denominator, that pushes up the cape ratio. Makes everything look much more expensive. very much more expensive. In fact, so I follow month by month the uh, cape ratio very closely. Bob, uh, it, it did at the bottom of the bear market go below the average, mm-hmm. um, and then a few months later, by May, and well, you know, the 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 average is uh, bottomed in March. By May, it already jumped above. And I said to myself, "Come, come on! That, I mean, we're 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 not into a, a you know a overvalued position on that. And of course, it's been going up ever since. But this is really the first year we've had a, a correction of of any magnitude uh, uh, that that is affecting it. But he, in my opinion, until we get that zero out of that average, which will, I guess will be 2018, 19. Yeah, right, 2018, 19. Bob is going to look and say, ooh, wow.'" The CAPE ratio is very, very overextended. My
1: my head of research is a gentleman named Mike Batnick, who's a big fan of yours and a fan of stocks for the long run. And he gave me this data point when we were doing some research into this conversation. He said stocks have been below their historical CAPE average 16 of the last 309 months. Since that time, the total return on the S&P 500 is 925%. I know. So clearly something with the CAPE, something 309 went wrong.
2: months, the past, let's call it 25 years, it's not working the way it, it it's used not, to work. It is not working. And again, Bob is just using the received one he did. And Bob has seen, I've written a paper on this actually, it's being considered one of the journals now. And uh, I, I, I hope it'll be published uh, soon. It's called uh, The CAPE Ratio, A New Look. And I acknowledge how what a great idea this is to average them, but then point out what these the problem is. And what I do, Barry, is I, I use alternative definitions like operating earnings and national income account earnings, mm-hmm. and I put those in and develop a cape ratio uh, for that, and that shows. Much less overvaluation in the market, so Coming. that that basically is where I stand in terms of you know why has the cape ratio been not a good predictor over the last four or five years, and it's been been because of this change in accounting standards.
1: This is Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. My guest this week on Masters in Business is Professor Jeremy Siegel
2: of the Wharton School of Economics at, is that the right title, Wharton School of Economics? Actually, it's just the Wharton School. It the, used to be the Wharton School of Finance, but now they've just shortened it.
1: The Wharton School, School of the University of Pennsylvania. At, at University of Pennsylvania. So so you wrote a book which was consistently in all sorts of lists of, yes. of best investment books of all time called Stocks for the Long Run. Let's talk a bit about the case for equities. What is the case for equities?
2: Yes, I started the research actually uh, 1987. Right. Good timing. Uh, (laughs) Actually, it was very interesting. Um, One of my colleagues at Wharton got a phone call from the New York Stock Exchange uh, uh, wanting to do a history of the exchange. Now, New York Stock Exchange was founded in 1792. Right. You co-authored a book on that, didn't uh, you? Revolution on Wall Street. Now, the, what's interesting is when when Marshall Bloom, which is uh, just retired as a faculty member at, at Wharton, he knew a, everything about history and, 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 and historical. I went up, he said, called me, he said, Jeremy, you're interested in the markets. You want to do this book? And I said, yeah. So I said, I'll tell you what I want to do, Marshall. I want to look at the longest history of stocks in the U.S. as I can. And he said, go ahead and do that. And I got it. And I got this stuff together. We 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 put it in the book, and well, and the New York Stock Exchange came back and said, "Jeremy, your stuff is fascinating, but it makes it too long." And um, in and, and and Marshall Bloom, in one of the most I think generous gestures, he said to me. Jeremy, this stuff, you can make your own book and just join me as a co-author on the institutional side of what happened since uh, 1792, which is when the New York Stock Exchange was founded. I got stock market data from 1802, so I couldn't quite get the first 10 years, but I got it after that. And uh, that was actually the beginning of the book, uh, The the Stocks for the Long Run. Now, here's the major idea that I think that I think really made it a a powerful uh, new book. Not just the long-term data, and not just the fact that stocks return 6.5% to 7% after inflation over all long-term periods. What I showed was when you stretch out your holding period up to 15, 20, 30 years, stocks actually were safer than bonds, had a lower variance and lower volatility than bonds, And I made one of the biggest criticisms I have of standard portfolio theory that we teach in in our business school. It's all based on one-year measures of risk. We Mm -hmm. all do one year. We grind it out and all that and assume that that's okay if we extend it in the future. But it isn't for stocks. Because stocks have a property which is now almost uniform. It wasn't at that time when I first wrote it, but afterwards, now among academics is almost uniformly agreed. It has a property called mean reversion, reverting to the mean. Mm-hmm. So you know we can have a couple good years of stocks, and if it gets way above, it'll come back down. A couple bad years, it comes back up. Mean reversion means that volatility in longer periods of time are relatively less than in shorter periods of time. Because you're going back to the mean. So
1: let, let me rephrase mean reversion for people who don't have any sort of a uh, little math phobia or don't have a math background. If we know stocks are going to return 7% a year, anytime we have a couple of years where they're returning considerably less than that, we should expect the next few years to, to be on the other side of the 7%. Or the other way around, when you have a period like 97, 98, 99, where they're returning... High double digits. Hey, you have to expect the
2: next few years. After that, you're going to be way below seven percent. Exactly. Now, I wish it could be just a couple of years. Sometimes it's longer, and sometimes you have a string. Yeah, you have a string of good years. I mean, actually, from 66 from 19, to 82. Well, it? 1982. Now we've had we had some interruptions, but to 2000 the average real returns on the market were nearly 14% a year. That was more than twice the average. I mean, that that shows you, and then we got, uh, you know, we got to the most overvalued position ever in March of 2000. We had a PE of... 30 for the S&P 500. We had a PE for 100 of the S&P tech stocks. And as I mentioned in an earlier segment, we had a PE of 600 for NASDAQ. So you can really get extended. If we all knew two years, it would turn around. It would make us feel a lot better. But sometimes it can be three, four, five years. Uh, but if you are 30 years, and don't forget, think of retirement funds. Right. I mean, you know, we put in IRAs we can stand four or five bad years, followed by four or five good years, and then even better years. And if we know that return over that longer period of time is going to beat bonds by three, four, 5% a year, wow, that becomes the asset of choice for the long run. So
1: so let's put that 82 to 2000, that secular bull market that lasted 18 years 18 return, years. 14% a year into context. The previous 16 years, from 1966 to 1982- Were terrible. Flat, essentially. Yeah, basically, But that's nominally, once you take inflation to adjust yeah, it into adjust into account. It
2: was virtually a, a zero. Right. right.
1: And then you turn around you say 2000 to 2013, essentially flat also, not right. counting dividends. And you had another period of high inflation right in the middle of that. Yeah. So when you talk about mean reversion over long periods of time, 10, 15 years, you can have a, a, no returns, fabulous returns for 10, 15 years,
2: and then- more no, no returns right. for another 10 15 years yeah. but it also then and it, you have to be careful about valuation again the bad period that that we had since 2000 was because we were at the most overvalued point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great period from 82 on started from an extremely undervalued went to fairly valued and then stretched all the way up right to same thing in
1: 1966 you had a 20-year yep. bull market we'd, from we'd, World War II. And overvalued 50, in 66, nifty, 50, very pricey. Those Again. were the, like you mentioned, yeah. the, the concentrated stocks in 2000. Exactly. Very, very similar concept. So, so let's, let me push back a little bit and give you a, an opportunity okay. to respond to criticism. Sure. The wall street journal had an article saying, well, stocks for the long run has a lot of survivorship bias. We really don't know, you know, there aren't a lot of great records from the 1800s yeah. All we know are a handful of stocks that survived. What about the hundreds of other stocks
2: that went out of business? What's the, what's the counter argument Okay, so So it's interesting. From 1871 on, mm-hmm. very careful to remove uh, any survivorship bias. In other words, every stock is there. If it went bankrupt and a zero, we put it in as zero. Mm-hmm. We don't just do the survivors. Wall Street Journal, a couple people had question my earlier data, 1802 to 1871, which was one of the innovative things that I added, and they pointed out that those series might have um, some survivorship bias. Now, fortunately, a number of academics, uh, Getzman um, uh, and others, uh, Will Getzman uh, um, and Ibbotson Ibbotson at Yale, Will Getzman at Columbia, you might have even— Maybe talk to them on your program. Uh, the, everyone knows the Ibbotson series and sure, all that. Absolutely, they went back to the newspapers and they actually dug down into every stock from around 1810 onward. Mm-hmm. And you know what the biggest uncertainty is? There is we it was they didn't have good records of dividends. Mm-hmm. But if you p- apply a, a dividend rate uh, among the ones that we do know to the ones we don't know. It was very, very close to the, the number that I actually got. So I, I think we, you know, again, there's no, no bias from 1871 onwards. We produced 6.5% from 1802 in real return, to 1870, in real, 1870 in real time with the zeros. Uh, now, there's another interesting question about survivorship bias, and that is relative to countries, mm-hmm. because people say, well, look at you know the United States' most successful country. What happens if you went into Russia? Or Argentina and all this, and there are definitely a few that don't. And three British economists, Elroy uh, Dimson, uh, Mike Staunton, um, uh, and uh, Terry Marsh, in two thousand, did an investigation of a hundred years of return in seventeen different countries. And what they find, interestingly enough, from, and I'm updating it now. To, to the first published in two thousand, but I'm updating it. Do you know that the United States was not the best from over the last hundred and fifteen years? And one country just shocks people out of their mind. South Africa had higher, and this is in US dollars, so mm-hmm. this is converting. South Africa and Australia. US was number three.
1: That's fascinating. Let let's since you bring up emerging markets, what do you think the role of emerging markets should be? in, in I the think typical portfolio. I
2: think they definitely have a role.
1: So you different from people like John Bogle, who says, ah, there's currency risk and there's other problems, just keep it at home. You like a global asset allocation well, model. Well,
2: first of all, th- th- that's an interesting thing. You, for the developed world, you can hedge currency risk today for zero price because the interest rates are, this when their interest rates are the same between the two countries, Currency risk can be hedged completely at no cost. It is expensive to hedge currency risk in the emerging markets, to be sure. And there's no question. I think it's like 12%, 15% in uh, Brazil and India, probably 6 or 7% a year, and that can drag your earnings down. That's why you have to make sure that, one, you're not buying an overpriced currency, and two, you're not buying overpriced stocks. And believe it or not, today when I look at emerging markets – Wow, I see both of those at being very low. Currencies are low and their prices are low relative to their earnings. I think in the next three to five years, emerging markets will be among the very best performing sectors.
1: We've been speaking with Professor Jeremy Siegel of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we let the digital tape keep rolling and continue chatting. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can see more of Professor Siegel's writings at JeremySiegel.com or just pick up Stocks for the Long Run. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio okay this is the podcast portion. I don't know why I do that every time. Uh, I, I stretch my arms out. okay this is a uh, international symbol for podcast. Uh, if I forget to say this later, thank you so much for doing this Professor Siegel we've been back and forth uh, for a while trying to arrange this. You're in Philadelphia yes. and you're only in New York on on rare occasions. Um, man, there are so many questions I did not get to. so Shoot. why don't why don't we pick up where we left off? So we have owned, I want to say for about four or five years, a wisdom tree, Japan, yen hedged funds, which when we first owned it, it hardly traded. Nobody paid attention to it. And then outcomes comes at Abenomics and this thing just yeah. goes straight up. Right. The yen collapses. Yeah. The Nikkei Dow skyrockets. Right. There's no offsetting. Yeah. Currency. Yeah. yeah. It uh, becomes risk.
2: almost a no-brainer, doesn't it?
1: And it and it became a fifty or a sixty billion dollar fund. I I don't want to say overnight, but very, very when we first put money into it, it was five or
2: six billion dollars. Well, I think it and, got to thirty. We didn't. We didn't get to sixty. But it it, it, it exploded just jive through the roof. Yeah, it went went through the roof, and then, then we did one for Europe that has been a, a enormous called hedge.
1: Now Europe is tougher because you can't hedge everything, so the the like Switzerland and Great Britain, but we yes countries that aren't in the euro but are important parts of the European economy. So yes. it's about what is it about fifty five percent hedge something. Well, like
2: that? I mean, we if if you want to take just eurozone. Mm-hmm. And you know, take the UK as something different, and Switzerland kind of uh, hard. To. Yeah, you know that that's that's true. You don't get you don't get those two segments, but clearly, it, that also became enormously popular when yep. Mario Draghi said, "You know what? I think we need to bring the euro down yeah, to QE get the uh, yeah yeah back. QE and that so that that also went from a one or two billion dollar fund all the way yeah big. big of- so how did you get involved with Wisdom Tree? How long have you been a, a part of that? Because that's uh
1: Jonathan Stein, Steinberg. Is that right? Jonathan Steinberg. Steinberg.
2: So his father, Saul Stein- Steinberg, went ran, to ran a big insurance company. And he went to Wharton.
1: Oh really? Yes. He ran uh, I'm doing this from memory, Reliance Holdings. Yes, correct. Is that right? That's right.
2: A buddy of mine was
1: at yes, general counsel right.
2: years ago. Yes, that's right. And that was a big shop. For that a long was time. a big shop. Um and he was he had been in the markets uh in, in many different ways. I think he was with Lisco at one point. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he rivaled IBM. He he went in and said, you know, IBM always leased their computers. Right. And uh, they wouldn't let you buy their computers in the 1950s. That was part of their policy. Huh. And the Supreme Court said you can't do that, but no one else changed. And he actually went in, got funding to buy them, and then undercut IBM, Leasing them, they made the money on the leasing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, he's been in the market one one way or the other, and uh, uh, again, he was at Wharton way before I was at Wharton. But his son went to Wharton, and uh, Jonathan Steinberg, and um, we had met each other on occasion. Um, uh, You know, Jonathan Steinberg's wife. I do not. Maria Bartiromo. Oh, that's right. I did know that. Yes. yes. So, and now Fox News. I, I actually had Maria in a class uh, that I did in New York about learning financial markets for financial reporters. Oh, Way that's back fascinating. before she became famous. So so how did you meet Steinberg? Was he a student of yours or just around? He was not in my class. So mm-hmm. I, he did I didn't I knew of him mm-hmm. but didn't know much of him. Uh, and and basically um, he, um, he called me up. He had a, 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 a financial magazine. He said, "Jeremy, would you like to do some columns on economics? Anything I you want to do?" I vaguely remember that That's magazine right. yeah. from about ten yeah, years ago. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly ago. what the title was. Um, uh, Not trader, but something else. Yeah, something about uh, investing. It was mostly right. in small companies, and right. obviously, when the when the market went poof in 2000, that had difficulty. Done,
0: Right. Um,
2: uh, and Kiplinger called me up. He had sold all his rights to Kiplinger, and Kiplinger, now I write a column every other month in Kiplinger. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, which was a continuation of that. But so I, I knew Jonathan a little bit, and Jonathan called me up back in two thousand two. Uh, he said, "Jeremy, he said, listen, you, you you've been having questions about cap weighted indices, you know, after the bust." I said, "Yeah, I, I was all in tech because it was so big, it was so much, and I wanted to get out of tech." And he said, listen, we're developing some indexes that instead of weighting by market cap, you weight by earnings or dividends. Also known as smart beta. Well, now known as smart beta. Right. Back then, it was fundamental indexing. Gotcha. Because it was based on a fundamental index, either earnings, dividends. Now people have extended that to sales and other concepts right. over that.
1: We've um, had Rob Arnott on Rob the show. Rob Arnott also. Right, we, Research we, Affiliates, Rafi. Uh,
2: research Affiliates actually came out with the first one, the Rafi uh 1000 we followed him with with others he has a more complicated formula. i know rob very very well smart guy uh, a very smart guy i like uh, i like him a lot and as you you might have known i mean it, it's public record um
1: there was a little little intellectual tip, property but, but you thing know settled we worked it up. We everybody settled. was happy we're here's all, a license we're all fine blah, blah, blah. now right and so. now wisdom tree is a big success what would you say 60 billion billion in assets that's about asset. 655 to 60 and, billion and uh, uh, back of the envelope they are 2.2 billion market cap right and according to something i read not too long ago you're a two percent holder of wisdom tree which makes you a 45 million dollar
2: man is do you feel like a forty five million dollar man? you know it's been really good for me i i i'm i feel very fortunate mm-hmm. uh I, I you know
1: it's nothing that you're selling anytime soon it's just uh, nice uh, to have i've sold i
2: have i have i've sold uh, a lot of it, I still hold. Hold it, hold it. Uh, my heart be still stocks for the long run. Jeremy well, Siegel no, but, is selling. But, whoa, whoa! But you, you, you're, you're, you're pretty, diversifying. So Barry, let me tell you. All right. So <laughs> let me let's let's be very frank. So let, let let's go through the story because that tells you a little bit about where you know my. That's own- a concentrated. Position, yeah, one that's stock. That's what I mean. All I, your uh, money. I'm teasing, yeah, but 99%. you can't have $50 million in can, one stock. You don't want 95% <laughs> of your net worth right. in one stock. So uh, <laughs> that's so I'm diversified. I still have a way overweight in that stock. But uh, so, and, and I'll go through this. Um, uh, uh, so I, he said, Jeremy, would you check this? We've got some preliminary data. Looks good. And I had a real good research assistant that helped me do Future for Investors, one of mm-hmm. my books also, his name is Jeremy Schwartz, mm-hmm. who's now, by the way, director of research at uh, Wisdom Tree,
0: uh-huh. and uh,
2: okay. he looked at that data. We looked at that data and said, "Wow, this beats cap waiting on a risk return base." We, we reported back to them, and they said, "You know, that's what we were finding, but you obviously have all the statistical techniques on that." Uh, he said, "Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit where we're going. We got Michael Steinhardt to fund a company." called index development partners mm-hmm. we're going thinking of launching a set of ETFs uh based on fundamental indexing um would you like to be an advisor uh and uh actually started me out I was also a board member mm-hmm. on that and I said yes I said I really I, I you know after the uh, the dot-com crash I said if Cap-weighted has flaws. D- huge flaws. Huge, flaws. huge flaws. Huge flaws. I mean, you know, here I had, you know, I mean, let's face it. I was a, in the first two or three editions, this talks for a long one, I was a huge uh, Vanguard fan. Right. <laughs> you know, if Vanguard paid me commissions for every dollar I probably of their index fund I sold. I would be rich from them. They're um, up to three trillion dollars.
1: I know, man, so. I know.
2: They're they're. I listen, and you Bogo know, I just and want one percent of that. I'm yeah. not greedy. Just listen, give me one percent. Bogo and I, I, I I love him. I think he's great. And he, you know, we've had a little difference. He said, Jeremy, I'm not happy. You went under the fundamental route and uh, didn't stay. You know that. I mean, he's you you've had him on as I, I have not. I've had. Oh, you I've haven't had, had him. I've had Jack Brennan, who's the former okay. chairman. Hey, and why CEO. don't you get Bogo?
1: You got to get Bogo. I would love to get Bogle, except I have to schlep into Battle Creek. He doesn't really tra- travel yeah, that much. Where is he? Uh, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah, So I've actually spoken to people here and said, let's do a field trip to Pennsylvania. Well, listen, there's only I, one Bogle. He's not getting younger. Uh, let's go. I think I. you should. You that, know, I don't know how well and by you the know. way, He's... Mike Steinhardt is another one I'd love to speak to. I find him absolutely fascinating Have you and asked brilliant. him? Um, Ask you
2: know, Michael. All right, you'll make an introduction. I'll we'll, make an we'll, introduction. Uh, you know, I, I know Michael personally. Uh, I, I actually now, Michael Steinhardt is another Wharton grad. Not surprisingly, not surprisingly, also someone I did I knew of but did not know. Mm-hmm. So you know it was like Jonathan. I had met him on a few occasions because being wife of Maria, my new class, and any a few occasions. Michael, I I don't I don't even remember meeting. Him. Of course, I knew about him. Sure. Um, and 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 all another that.
1: fascinating guy, really interesting oh, story he's, background. He's
2: quite a fascinating guy. Um, and he's also written a book, by the way. I think a, 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 a basically a book of his. Uh, of, of his life and investing, and it's also very fascinating. I'm going to have to pull that. A, I know I is have is that a, somewhere. Yeah, he is a fascinating guy. We we become quite friendly with him, my wife and I, and through we, Wisdom we, Tree. Yeah, through Wisdom Tree. In his position, so, he's chairman of the board. So, so Jonathan Steinberg was CEO, and Michael you're on Steinhardt. the board of
1: advisors. He's the chairman. Yeah,
2: I'm on basically an advisor. I'm no longer on the board of uh, uh, the, directors. The, the directors. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, for various reasons, I, I I stayed there for about one year, but I'm senior investment strategy advisor. And, you know, he said, come on. And, you know, part of it was options, you know, as sure. tech companies and all that. Um, um, so uh, Index Development Partners was trading as the stump company from his original company. Mm-hmm. So it was trading at four cents a share. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I, Love to go know, back in time so, and buy some know, of so, that. So all that. So let me just mention to you, because it's a member of public record, selling at four cents a share. When it was announced that you know Michael Steinhardt had funded, we're changing the index development, and I joined it, it closed the next day at a dollar fifty. There you go. That's wow. a good return right there. It subsequently went up to ten, uh huh, and then crashed to about forty cents in, oh, the, really? in the crisis. So, and where is it now? It, uh, so now it's 15. All right, so 40 cents to 15, four it's cents to a dollar 50. Yeah. It actually so, was as high as 27 since, but this tremendous downdraft. And you were day trading this the whole time. No, right? I don't trade, I never <laughs> day traded this ever. <laughs> I did not trade, trade this, no. So, I mean, we all of us went through a roller coaster. So, as oh, it started sure. going up, you know, I said, Listen, am I gonna? Yeah, I said and and as we said i mean i'm stocks for the long run but i i d- d- didn't you have, have to all diversify my yeah, you have right, to right. the
1: volatility is stomach churning now here's the uh, maybe funny isn't the right word but here's the um interesting parallel think about every tech company and every 28 year old software engineer project manager whatever at emc dell mm-hmm. yahoo go through the whole Intel Sun Oracle yeah, Microsoft these got kids yeah. in their 20s and 30s suddenly are worth tens of millions hundreds of millions of dollars well, the same thing happened and then the- watching it drop 80 percent
2: well yeah that's 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 right uh and in fact wi- wisdom tree in it's in its in, and I think at that time it was uh yeah, winsome Tree for. We changed our name from Index Development Partners to Wisdom Tree. But we're talking about a 95 cents drop from nearly 10
0: down 95%. To
2: four, 95% drop. That's a big that, drop. That that was well, you know, that's stomach churning. Uh that was yeah, but you know so hey, winsome yeah, Loose some yeah, what winsome, the with the 50 million out. So, you know, I I <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was quite a ride, but you know, you know, truthfully as I say, um uh, to me, my teaching, I mean, I, I never was a guy, I mean, I own one car. It's not a fancy car. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a real expensive guy that has real expensive tastes. Uh, I mean, and the fact that I've become better off than I had ever imagined really gives me an opportunity to be charitable. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm very thankful for that. So, so let's talk a little bit about,
1: um, that's really a fascinating set of stories. Let's talk a little bit about the concept yeah. of indexing. Yeah. And we've been having this debate back and forth in my office. Yeah. All right. So through a, a random twist of fate, the first major indexes are set up cap-weighted, right? right. It, well,
2: yeah. I mean, well, twist of fate. Uh, it's it, it, Is it two... random or what was no, the underlying no. so basis? So there's two forces about there. Mm-hmm. One, it's- um, it's almost a natural weighting in the sense of, all right, I'm going to buy all the stocks, but, uh, you know. They'll go up and down well, and st- I, I, on the well, obviously, i got to buy more of a big stock than a little. So let me just look at the market capitalization and buy relative to that. The good thing about that weighting is that if the stock goes up, you don't have to sell or buy because it's automatically reweighted in your portfolio exactly the same right, as the right. market. That makes it extremely convenient. But secondly... If the market is efficient, we economists had proved cap-weighted portfolios are the best optimal portfolios for risk return. So Let's, let, let it, me repeat that. Okay, if the market is efficient, efficient so that all the information is impounded in the price. All right. So cap-weighted it, 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 is the it, most efficient. It risk. is the most efficient. Any other weighting will give you a, a worse risk-return trade-off than the cap-weighted.
1: So in other words, on a risk-adjusted return, cap-weighted is the most efficient. If the market is efficient. Now, what we see is there are times when the market is mostly efficient, but during those boom-bust periods, that's that's, that's exactly where things right. get a little crazy. Exactly. So back to the 2000 year, as exactly. you discussed, when the S&P
2: 500 is trading at- 30 or 40 times. And the tech sector at 100 and Nasdaq at 600. So so That's that crazy. means
1: that that means that a handful of stocks are just wildly way over.
2: out, uh, oversized within the index. And if you're a cap weighted weight, you can't sell those. You got to hold them.
0: Within Even the though index. you
2: know this is crazy, if you're cap weighted, you got to hold them. Meaning the index portfolio construction is
1: going to be wildly overweighted on wildly the weight. most overpriced stocks exactly. by definition. Exactly. So now here's the argument that we've been having in the office. Okay. So that efficiency, that coincidence back when funds first, indexes first started being created, we really didn't have the full on technology to slice and dice everything and look at things by book value and look at, at least as easily as today, book value, earnings, revenues, whatever you want. And the argument is- the counter argument is if you go with with a fundamental weighting, you're basically owning a stock in a within the index in a closer proportion to its impact to the total economy. Exactly. So if that's the case, and here's where the debate is, I've argued that hey, you're making a decision to weight an index by something, whether it's cap or earnings or book value, you're choosing it some people claim that if you weight an index by earnings or by book value or by whatever that's in. active
2: management um, i don't i'm not comfortable with that okay, assessment okay well we could let uh, we could uh th- let's talk a little bit about that okay um the way that these uh, fundamental w- weighted index, and I think it's exactly the same way with our nots Knots, uh, uh mm-hmm. as so, we Wisdom do. Tree, Rafi. Yeah, we, what you do is it's on the basis of just objective data on the earnings. We don't make any judgment whatsoever on whether the company is a quantitative is good or factor, bad. it's a quantitative factor, and that's it, and that's it. So, now I when often you think of that- act, active management. That you could call that, but that's like active management at low level lowest level. I, I really mean, look at that as a it's passive but it's constructed differently yeah, exactly. than market cap. That's exactly the way I would prefer it. I think active is when you have judgments and you're presented With prices going up or down, I think this has now fulfilled my price target given the potential of the company. Blah, 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 blah. blah, Exactly. That's what I think about as active management. The other is really what we call, uh, you know, what's now called smart beta in the sense is construct a base of your portfolio. But instead of using cap weighted, use a fundamental weight to get the weight. And ultimately, that index
1: then runs itself based on the initial parameters. That's right. And there's no.
2: You have to rebalance. Now how often? Do how often you rebalance? We like okay. quarterly. We balance once a year. Okay. Others do it more. We've we've been examining it. Um, you know, there's there's no theory that tells you how many there's times a lot you're going to do it.
1: We found that there's a lot of costs, taxes, expenses. Re, there are people who I we find rebalance way too often, and it's just yes. expense.
2: So we 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 add wisdom to rebalance once a year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, once we look at it, we look at the fundamentals and the price, and we move. You know, if the fundamentals moved up, but the price didn't, we buy more of it. The fundamentals moved down. uh, We buy less of it relative. It's all relative to the price by a formula. You know, again, no judgment. It's a formula that anyone... Out there can you know? I mean, you they can you access. can do this. On, you, anyone can do, do, it. do it on your own. Yeah, no, but you, you know, know we, we do it at a very cheap cost. Right. Uh, very There's no cheap. reason
1: for anyone to try and put together 300 stocks. Yeah. One by one, when one ETF, you can go. Yeah. One for eight ETF bucks. will do it for yeah. And your internal expense ratios
2: are fairly competitive. Very low. Yeah. yeah you're I mean,
1: not a, a high priced fund. You're no. pretty inexpensive. Generally. We are
2: very. We are very. In fact, that. That was one thing I told Jono. I mean, don't forget, I was again before the 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 dot com bubble. I was very much an index fan, and of course, mm-hmm. we know Vanguard's five, six, seven basis points. Right, they're crazy. So, too. Yeah, I mean, they're you know, and I. But I told Jono when he, you know, uh, uh, that's what everyone called Jono, Jono. Steinberg. Yeah, Jono is is that I said to Jono when he wanted me on. I said, listen, Jono, um, I will be on, but let's let's keep these management fees low. I know this is a great thing. And I know on the basis of what we see risk and return, we could probably, you know, charge 150. And he said, no, Jeremy, I want this to be low. I want to get assets. I want to do a job for people. I want to get them over from from Vanguard and from Index. And I'm with you 100% on that.
1: See, I I look at you guys not as pulling money. By the way, there's been a, from what I understand, there's been an internal debate at Vanguard about smart beta. And yeah. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon although I I don't make predictions very often but I'm going to predict one day Vanguard is going to just see a lot of money going to to fundamental indexing and I, they're I going to so say too. all right why not if they could do it we could do it better cheaper so I think Vanguard is is going to be of watching Of course you guys I don't closely. know
2: whether uh, the uh, again I mean they did ETFs and Bogo as you know objected furiously right uh he would go bananas if Vanguard absolutely <laughs> with the absolutely. fundamental. I don't know, he's probably an honorary member now. I don't know if he has an official uh position um, any longer. Yeah,
1: he's he's a some emeritus title. Yeah, there. he's right. still
2: oh no, listen, he's Mr. Vanguard. I for mean, sure. let's face it. Uh, and but but you know, they had a big falling out on ETFs. Uh, you
1: know, they to to Vanguard's credit,
2: they looked at gee, this is a Fastest growing of section course. of the. Uh, but but as you know, Bogo was really ideologically opposed. He doesn't like ETFs because he says it encourages people Trader, to trade, trade. Exactly. Although he's a, he's a buy and hold guy, right? And he does did not like that at all. So. He, that was, but
1: he also doesn't like emerging markets and developed markets overseas, of the currency risk. Vanguard has a huge. I know. Not right. hedged the way you guys yeah. are, but, but they have huge but, but, overseas but that, exposure. That,
2: that, that's true, but it, that isn't as big as when they did ETFs. Right. Because they were, they were potentially gutting his baby there with right. the Vanguard index
1: Meanwhile, Fund. the ETFs have worked out pretty well for them. Oh, sure. They're yeah. still very low cost. Very They, they
2: parallel the mutual of funds. Of course, of course.
1: Although, um, I forgot what it's called, the Admiral shares. If you're buying institutional yeah. quantity shares of Vanguard- it's amongst the cheapest things in the world. Yeah. It's cheaper yeah. than the ETFs. Yeah. And it, it appeals to a very specific audience. It appeals to, to the RIAs. It appeals to big endowments and trusts. It's the cheapest way they could get instant exposure. And they're buying stuff for 10 or 20 years. They don't care about the ETFs. Right, right. So right. for their perspective.
2: um, So that's interesting. I didn't know you uh, knew Bogle very well. Oh, or, very well. I, I, I have tremendous respect for him. again, we had a... Uh, You know, we've had differences on the smart beta fundamental indexing, but uh, uh, he is definitely man that will go down in the history, and he should. And, uh, yeah, Barry, I think bring bring yourself down. It's worth – you know, he's had – It's worth getting down there. Well, he's had some unbelievable health challenges, as you know. He was Mm – Born with a defective heart yes. and had to wait like 15 years for a heart transplant. Right. They didn't even know he'd survive. And now he's and 80-something. Yeah, he's and... lived 20 years beyond that. And, right. You know, but obviously none of us are going to live forever. Um it, I, I would... The
1: Google guys are working on that. <laughs> they're, they're trying to find a way. Uh...
2: I'm too old to get forever living. Maybe my children will get forever living. I, I think
1: the, you'll end up bored after a while if, if, for eternity. So so let's go back to stocks for the long run. Yeah. We talked about the case for equities. We talked about why over the long haul, stocks are less risky than bonds, less volatile. Um, we didn't talk about the significance of dividends to long-term stock returns. And I find people are always surprised when I show them data from your book as to the significance of dividends.
2: Well, let's let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. Well, and and it's changed. Uh, Let let, let me kind of present a big picture here. Up until around 1975 or 80, firms used to pay out two-thirds of their earnings as dividends.
1: Two-thirds Two of their earnings. Two-thirds wow. of their
2: earnings in the earlier years and through the 19th Are we sec- talking
1: about first half of the 20th century? Yeah, or- well, even
2: the first half of the 20th century started changing post-war, began to accelerate around the late 70s and 80s, and right now it's one-third. Mm-hmm. So it's, and so what's the S&P 500 dividend yield now? About 2.1. 2, 2, okay. Yeah. So
1: so better, about the same as a 10-year bond. Yes.
2: Plus the upside on the equity. And graph. plus you got the buybacks, mm-hmm. which is now, so what had happened- and this has to do with a, a number of factors we could talk about if people want to. But firms have substituted buybacks for dividends. Now, I'm not a big fan of buybacks, and I'm curious as to okay, your perspective. Okay, we have something to argue. I am a fan. Well, uh,
1: I would rather see them pay the money in dividends. Oh, I'm with you there. Okay.
2: But I. everyone else says, oh, they should be investing in this and this and this and this and, this and buying this. And I said, hey, listen, I w- I'm would. i with you, Barry, 100%. I prefer the dividends. But if it's not going to be dividends, the buybacks are the second best thing uh, to what long term R&D. And long-term uh, yeah. Investment Believe it and- or not. Or expanding planet. Or do you know what firms do? They have all this money. Hey, I can buy this firm. I always like that firm. You know, let's pay 100 percent premium on crazy. Right. You know, I mean, you have these CEOs. I mean, many are good, but some of our empire builders got right. cash on hands are going to buy.
1: Well, they so, spend one decade building these conglomerates and the next decade taking them
2: apart. apart. Right? We've seen Crazy. that over and over again. Crazy. So, you know, as I say, I, I mean, I prefer with you. I I would love to see it in dividends. Unfortunately, you know, uh, we've, we're now, you know, under Obama. We have, you know, we used to have 15% tax, and now it's first it went to 20 and then the 3.6% on right. that. This has raised the tax on dividends again, pushed it reduce, towards... Reduced the right. Reduce yeah, I mean, we... You you know we are one of the only countries in the world that we double tax dividends. You know, at one point in time, it was taxed as ordinary income. I know. I mean, back in the day, dividends were taxed at forty percent. Do you know that crazy. single people got a hundred dollar uh, exemption and married couples two hundred dollars exemption? Way back when, in yeah. the sixties, uh, you got your first two, and then it was absolutely ordinary income. At right the
1: now, the you know, people complain about Not- fifteen. People used to complain about fifteen percent, and my
2: answer was always.
1: Hey, it used to just be yeah. like you're looking at It And not, it is
2: much better than 39% to, to have it today at mm-hmm. uh, 23%. But but you'd rather see it at 15 or 20. Yeah, than, I mean, sure. I, or or I, I was actually advocating. I had um, written some papers on it when I began to look at dividends. Um, and I was actually uh, at, in congressional testimony when President Bush... First developed that break for dividends because he was Bush there. one, Bush two, Bush two. Okay, Bush. We got the first dividend break in Bush two, mm-hmm. and uh, that was part of the big 03 yes, tax uh, exactly. tax cuts. And that was I, a huge set of tax cuts. Uh, huge. Now, I was actually interesting. I actually advocated that they um, exempt them, well, exempt dividends from the corporate tax because that's we're double taxing them. Firm. When you say
1: exempt dividends from the corporate tax, how would that apply? You mean at the corporate level yes. or by holders? So
2: right now, as you know, corporations can subtract all the interest on their debt before yes. pay. I also wanted them to be able to subtract all the dividends on their stock. Why not?
1: So in other words, it, it it's a cost like yeah. interest.
2: right. And it's well, taxed interest at my is my level. Why again? Why one reason they exempted it because I'm taxed on interest, so they don't do it on corporation. Why do they double tax the dividend? I'm taxed on dividends, and they're not. Get the break on the cost side.
1: The, I think the reason is interest is an operational expense, and dividends is a capital structure expense. Well, you can, think or is of that it slicing that it too fine? Well,
2: but that's honestly, firms have a choice: debt or or equity, or right. both, or what. You know, well, yeah,
1: I guess if you look at it that way, it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I you're can, borrowing money or you're borrowing and listen, equity. If
2: you want to prevent all the over leverage, which is you know one of the things that led to the financial crisis, mm-hmm. you don't want to. It's encouraging debt.
1: Right. It's creating a bias more towards borrowing and exactly. less towards equity exactly. issuance. Exactly. So, so let's go back to the buybacks a second. Yeah. yeah. The the rub against it, the argument against it is when we look through the history of buybacks companies have a tendency to, be, to do it very poorly. We have Dell in the news. They just announced the purchase of EMC. The data point on Dell, which I find astonishing, is they spent more money on buybacks over their history when they were a public company than their total earnings over the course of that same period, which means they had to be buying high in order to, to either reduce the float or issue more well, stock options. So aren't- Corporate executives, poor timers of when they. They shouldn't
2: be timers, though. I I think you just buy it at the market price. Some yes, sometimes you'll be overpaying. Sometimes you're underpaying. You shouldn't try to time it. Mm-hmm. Now I know Warren Buffett always says, "Yeah, if I think it's cheap, I'll start buying more." Well, he's on that, and he encourages others. But my feeling is, all right, if you're not going to give it as dividends, let's suppose you buy three percent back a year. Just do it every month. You know, just as a stand, you know, some. Some years you'll be overpaying, some years you'll be underpaying, but on average you'll be paying the price, and you'll be getting you know a a fair market value. In fact, by the way, you will be buying more when the price is low because a thousand dollars. You're doing a dollar dollar cost average. Dollar cost average. It's actually a dollar cost averaging. So if they do
1: that, they're buying less when it's expensive, more when it's cheap. Yes. Right.
2: So in a way, it's not. You know, obviously, some of them, if they do it all on one date or they don't do it for a few years. They suspend
1: So during the financial crisis, everybody suspended their purchase program, well, which of course was when stocks were the cheapest they've been in a decade. Uh, well, they didn't have earnings either. <laughs> to <laughs> say the least.
2: So, I mean, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was a but problem. That's,
1: that's how you end up with them overpaying. Cause when things are cheapest, they're in the least strong to position certain, to buy.
2: To a certain extent, that's, that's true but we know there's a lot of times the market goes down as I said you know when we talked about earlier it overpredicts recessions it sure. reacts 20 and 30% and, and the earnings they, are not
1: down and that's where they get a good uh, a, a, a good, good purchase return. price good all right so so to sum that up prefer dividends over buybacks yep. but but if if you you don't have the dividend then you're going to do the buybacks yes all right um that's really quite quite fascinating so we did that let's talk about IPOs you're another person uh who says eh IPOs take it yeah. as a whole they don't really impress yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Discuss. Uh, well you know and 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 it's interesting uh it was I I looked at all the IPOs uh around everyone not cherry picking the hot ones not cherry picking the high one uh and I did this around 2005 and 6 um and when I looked all the way back, I compared it to a, a small stock index, not just the S&P. And my conclusion was, if you bought the portfolios of that, there were a few of these huge winners, but there were so many losers right. that you really uh, didn't beat a small stock index. Right. Um, and I wasn't excited about that. Now, I didn't have the resources to, it, because it takes an awful lot of time to when in my fifth edition to update it. Some other people said, Jeremy, you know, in the last five, six, seven years, things have been better for the IPOs, and because
1: it's been harder to go public unless you really right, have profit. Right, like and the lesson of two thousand is, hey, don't buy IPOs right. that don't have profits. Right. And so, I think
2: I think one of you know really Barry, one of our biggest problems is we have firms disappearing. Sure. From, I mean, you know, it's it's really the anti-IPO, the go in private. Um, and I I think that that is really deleterious to our whole capital markets. I love IPOs now in the sense that you're willing to go public. And My firm was willing to go public. I mean, mm-hmm. we we're publicly traded. Um, and uh, John O has has said uh, that that was very important to us when what is we the were Wil- publicly traded. What is the Wilshire 5000 now? Something three thousand like- five hundred something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, can It's find 5, usually stuff. right.
1: It's it's that's a myth. So now some people have blamed. The regulatory environment. Some people are blamed. I have access to all this, this. The venture capital market is now so broad and deep; it's almost as if there isn't a need for a lot of these companies to go public. You look at Uber. What are they worth? Fifty billion dollars with yeah. ten billion dollars. But there's the got to be an
2: exit, right? For the VCs, you would think. Yeah. Right? So at some particular point. By the way, I do think uh, I uh, you know there's been some studies on this. I do think Sarbanes-Oxley and the regulation afterwards the burden after on public after 2000 yeah and 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 now particularly on financials i mean i just know how much more we've had to do with compliance oh sure i mean the financial firms it's it's incredible you have to dot your i's and cross your t's every single thing i mean there the burden of going public um so uh, let me tell you from- i think it's i and i think that's bad because it doesn't give us it doesn't give ordinary people an access to exciting capital developments.
1: It, it's a friction on returns. It's yes. a drag. Listen, I run a relatively small office. We have an outside lawyer. We have an outside compliance firm. We have to do outside right. security updates just to make sure everybody's data is is sensed. Everything we write is is archived. We have multiple off-site. Exactly. Uh, it's amazing. Now, after nine eleven, a lot of people lost a lot of data. It was really a problem. So they had to make some changes. But it is practically a full-time job to keep a relatively small firm fully compliant, fully legal, fully matching everything. Um uh, a big firm, that, that's that got to be a staff of
2: lawyers, a staff of accountants. That's got to be amazing. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And one wonders, you know, we've had a, 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 you know, I'm a macroeconomist, so I always look at the GDP and all that. We've had a productivity collapse of enormous proportions over the last four or five years. We don't, as economists, know all the reasons why that, but- we should have been increasing GDP four to five percent a year, not two to three. Given so, the, given what we've seen, and we don't understand what's going on. But uh, is it regulation? Is it rules? Is it compliance? Is it administration go-overs? I mean, I, I'm just saying, we you know we we we've, we've been having a, a productivity collapse. Let's talk
1: about talk- that because th- that's a fascinating subject, yeah. and I've seen some very smart economists make the argument. That we're measuring productivity wrong.
2: All right. There's no doubt that. I've suggested. Actually, I wrote an article, as, as I mentioned. To I,
1: I must or, have been referring to you.
2: It might have been. I, I <laughs> actually, so I say I write um, Kiplinger's every other month. That was uh, I, I write. It, and I, I, I talked about the productivity collapse. And I said, you know. No one buys cameras anymore because it's all on their phone. Right. The the government doesn't count it anymore because something that goes to zero in price doesn't get in GDP. Right. And Uh, yet your phone is, it's a phone, it's a computer, it's a camera,
1: it's It's a recording device.
2: It's it's right. It's everything. No one buys standalone GPSs anymore. And they're, they're building the car or you don't buy them. Right. Everyone uses their phone. I mean, all sorts of things now have become free. Now, I've talked to others and they say, Jeremy, there's something to that. We don't know. I mean- Hedonic
1: adjustments and all that fun uh, stuff. Hedonic
2: adjustments are very, very difficult to do, but the data is absolutely striking. The collapse of productivity from 2011 through today uh, is, is of a magnitude we have not seen, especially in an economic expansion. And this is very important in lower energy prices. We've had a collapse before. But that was in the 70s when energy was going way up in price. I right. understand why productivity collapsed at that particular
1: time. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if regulations are part of it. I wouldn't be surprised if us measuring technology is, is part, part of it. it. I gotta imagine there's
2: a, a whole bunch of different. Well, who factors knows? That I mean, I, you know, there's. I mean, I everyone has know. their pet thing. Right. You know, some people say it's the millennials' work habits. They're just not working hard. They're not working hard on their job, so that's one reason Do why. Do you believe that? You deal with
1: millennials every but day. But I you
2: deal with my... – okay, so
1: – Are they but lazy? I... Are they stupid? Are
2: they – you're – Well, you're... I get wonderful students at work. I'm, so I'm, I was I'm gonna, blessed.
1: I was – can I tell you something? I've heard this millennials are bums argument. I'm the old man in the office, hey. and all the guys who work for me, I have an unbelievable staff of, of 20-somethings and 30-somethings who are really hardworking, who are really smart – what we crank out as, a, I don't want to make this segment about me, but my experience has been working with young people, um, they, they're come, they they come dressed in flip-flops and t-shirts. But other than that- <laughs> Yeah, they do their job. But so I'm not going to say, I don't, yeah. They're so, very, very talented. They're talented, at least talented my and are willing
2: to, mo- yeah, I know. I mean, it's a lot of, um, but you know, there's- First of all, there's a lot of people now under the burden of the student debt, which is, as you know, one point two trillion dollars. But but there's been huge
1: student debt for for long, long no, time. Is, it's at record heights now. No, but, but
2: it's gone up and up and
1: up for. Uh, 10 years I'm 54, fifty four. I'm almost done paying my student loans.
2: So no, but really, Barry, the, we we've had student debt over the last ten years go from maybe three hundred billion to it's 1. tripled
1: 2, right. It's quadrupled.
2: And I actually think it was
1: a lot sold of these
2: on miss information a lot of these
1: online schools you know what it
2: was it was what's happened is there was an idea as let's take a look at the earnings of graduates college graduates versus non-college graduates sure. and oh it's this much that means they can actually take on 60 80 90 100,000 dollars of debt because their earnings are going to be so much more they're going to pay it back well, the, there's the a little prob, The problem is now you're now getting a generation that before would go into the workplace, they wouldn't get scholarships because they weren't as good. Because don't forget, if you're really good, you can go to Harvard and they'll pay everything for you, right? So these were not, and you know, I know some not as good students, they didn't have it, but now they were given. Uh, you know, a ticket, you had these lesser schools that could never charge 50,000, but now because the government gave them a loan, they could, they overcharged for the type of education they were giving. They weren't giving them the skills that they needed. They weren't getting placed. And as a result, after they get out, they weren't getting the jobs that were paying that much more. Right. So I think that what I understand the motive was good and I'm in education, but I think Unfortunately, that, that's that been a burden for a lot of students.
1: Yeah, when when you look at... First of all, there's a correlation error there. Mm-hmm. Graduate students get high, paid... So therefore, everyone... Let's make we, everyone a graduate student. Yeah, we can make everyone a graduate student. It's Lake Wobegon. Where that's everyone's right. above average. Yeah, that's right. not going to work. We'll make, and it's not going to work. But the other thing is, we've had over the past decade, all of these fly-by-night colleges come into effect. Yeah. Some of these online... And- yeah. And you're a graduate of, of the university of .com online. You're not going to get the same sort of job as a graduate from work. Well, Wharton.
2: and it's, it's not only that. Actually, there were just lesser schools that were, had a hard time getting students. And all of a sudden, I said, just a minute, the government now is paying tuition. And I, I see some of these lesser-known schools. I'm not going to say which ones they are. They're charging like Harvard prices. And right. they say, we fill them through the loan program.
1: And, and when was that, when were
2: the big changes made to the
1: to the loan availability? If ten years ago we were at three hundred thousand uh, dollars, three hundred uh,
2: three hundred thousand, uh, three hundred billion uh, dollars, you know, again, I would have to check that. That it might be. I just know when. But there's, been, saw, a there's the been, been a huge increase in the past decade. Huge increase in the last decade. Now you know, uh, and that I saw. I mean, that was what was shocking. From, you know, like early 2000s till now, it was almost like a straight line So up. what changed that suddenly Because had, the government had- See, this is another thing. The, you know what? The loan problem wasn't on the government budget because they all, it was a loan. And it was always paid. And it was always paid. And now- And do you, And they put a one- You know that one thing they put in the law? A student cannot go bankrupt to avoid- They
1: changed that a while ago. That I, was I like know, years but that ago. was
2: one reason why none of that- trillion dollars is in the budget. It was so easy for them. Oh, we'll just give a guarantee. It's not on the budget. Mm-hmm. So see, banks
1: make those loans. And you know, yeah. You can't that, discharge them in bankruptcy. So eventually the banks will get their pound uh, of flesh,
2: And the government does through the guarantees. Oh, they can't right. go bankrupt. We're going to get our money. In fact, someone told me that according to government accounting, they were actually counting a profit because- yes. From it because they were actually getting more from the students than they were had to pay on the government debt. So I'm floating, you know, treasury bills at three basis points and I'm getting student loans at five percentage points. And That's a winner. It, it, it shrinks the deficit. Wow. It's crazy.
1: So that has to be reformed. That has to be. Yeah, well, revised. a lot
2: of things, you know, in the name of let's give everybody a college education, it's going to, you know, it, you can't pay, it pays for itself. But and, it doesn't. And it not for a lot of students, unfortunately.
1: And they, they come out without the better jobs and a boatload of debt.
2: Exactly.
1: That that's really fascinating. Let me let me mix stuff up on you a little bit, because I know I don't have you all night. Yeah, and I will. Um, yeah, let do. me let me get to some of my favorite questions that sure. I ask all my guests. Okay. Um so
2: before the Philly Fed, you were essentially Well, I don't eat now. I was full time at Wharton. I just did one uh I, I took a one semester sabbatical where I actually was at the Fed as a researcher mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't uh, you know I was it, it was it wasn't really a any sort of a permanent job at the so, Fed so but
1: you worked with somebody there one of the questions I wanted to ask were who were your early mentors you've obviously oh, yeah. mentored countless students over the years over the decades well, who were your mentors well,
2: I would say in graduate school it was Paul Samuelson Oh sure. Um one of the giants. One of the giants. Paul Samuelson, Robert Solo. these are MIT, Franco Mendigliani. Um uh, but that, That's pro- a
1: that's murderous row right Yeah.
2: Um uh, listen, I'm honored. You know all those three were my three thesis advisors for a PhD. Right? Uh, and all Nobel Prize. And, and it was before uh, well Samuelson had won the Nobel Prize, the other two had not yet. They had got him after I actually left. So all three of your PhD yeah. advisors, advisors won a Nobel Prize. That's right. That's astonishing. That is that 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 is something. But I would say the person that influenced me the most was Milton Friedman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read University of Chicago. Uh, University of Chicago. First of all, I read a lot about him. You know, from capitalism and freedom, which I read in college and I was I was really kind of a libertarian mm-hmm. and I still consider myself sort of a moderate libertarian in many ways.
1: Is there such a thing? Because the libertarians I know are really very black and white. Well,
2: that's what I think is the problem. I mean, I, I you know, Milton Friedman used to call himself a libertarian, but he is not. I mean, you know, libertarians today, like you know, Rand Paul, want to get rid of the Fed, right. go back to the gold standard. Get, this rid, was of, not, get rid of
1: the FDA, yeah, go yeah, back everything, to the gold standard. Everything.
2: So, I mean, you know, and Milton was not for, for all that. I mean, he was, of course, he wanted to reform the Fed to make it operate right, but he did believe we can't go. He did not support going back onto the gold standard. Um, and I read The Monetary History of the United States when I was at, 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 at MIT. That was my specialty, was monetary theory and policy. My thesis was on monetary policy and inflation. I was actually trained as an econ- economist, not in finance. Were you a pure macro? I was a pure economist. So let me tell you a little secret. Okay. Which not everyone knows, but... but I, uh, Don't tell uh, anybody. Uh, um, so I've never taken a finance course in my life. Really? At undergraduate, MBA, or PhD level. That's uh, unbelievable. I've, I know. But I
1: know. you wrote the book
2: that I know, pretty much has know, become know, the standard. Have I, you ever I, disclosed I, this publicly? Are we going to shock I've, people I've with that? I've disclosed it a little bits, but not very much. Um, I, I wonder when my students will say, just a minute, you're, so undergraduate- you're, you're one of the most prof- famous professors of finance, you're the Russell E. Palmer Professor of Finance, at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and you've never taken a finance course.
1: And the answer is not undergraduate, not PhD. Or MBA. Never. So Wait, wait, where, you have a PhD and an MBA?
2: No, I don't have an MBA, oh, okay. but I, I the, didn't. You've you never know, taken any of that. I've classes. never taken the class. So That's unbelievable. Uh, so, uh, so they said, where do you learn? I said, I, I. well, first of all, let me say, who was in my class at MIT? It only a class of 30 people. Bob Schiller. Right. Robert Merton. Okay. You know, of uh, you know Black Shoals. Sure. I mean, I had... An incredible reservoir of brains and talent that I bounced ideas. I remember Bob Merton coming to me. You know, I was in graduate school in the sixties when the capital asset pricing model was being developed. Right. Uh, you know, and I remember Bob one saying he said, "Jeremy, you know, there's some stuff here. Let's talk about it." You know, Bill Sharp and 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 the beta idea and all that. And said, "Let let's talk about this." And we were it was happening right then. But I my whole Focus, uh, and I was in the economics department. Was I loved monetary theory and the policy, the Fed, money all that, and I, I, I stayed there. But I always had a love for markets, and it was a perfect meld of of. And, and I, I remember once my publisher, when when I wrote stocks to the wrong run first edition, he said, "You know what's interesting? You really have a top down look. Right? It's kind of a macro look. And so many times I see people bottom up, they're specialized, and I think uh, there were little bits of of holes that I had to fill on my own which was a struggle but I'm very thankful that I approached it from a, an expertise level in macro it, it's a very different look than somebody who could easily yeah, get lost right. in the weeds and that's why I kind of they always say gee Jeremy, you always get to the big picture looking down and I said yeah because that's the way I was trained um as a macro as a macroeconomist so in a way uh, you know, I struggled. I mean, I would have learned Edo's Latim much better if I'd taken some of the FIDO's courses, the pricing, the options and all that. And I struggled on my own. But you own. still
1: got to the right answer your own. It. Right. You just had to
2: crunch it, it, your own numbers. I had to crunch my own numbers.
1: So you mentioned monetary policy. Uh, yeah. Ben
2: Bernanke has yeah. his new book out. And the, I'm reading it. I brought it actually. It's in my briefcase. I'm on page Four hundred. It just came out Monday. So
1: you're about a quarter of the way through. Um, <laughs> a Little bit more than half. What, what did you? Th- what did? Let's talk about the Fed. What did you think about the job that the Fed and Ben okay. Bernanke did during the financial I've, crisis? I've, I've, I've lectured a lot about that. I think he did extraordinarily well. Extraordinarily well. Right. I. We had, by the way, we had Paul McCulley, mm-hmm. who used to be the chief economist at Pimco, is Correct. now retired, and he was one of the first people who came on. And just
2: fire and brimstone defense of the Fed. All you people criticizing know, the Fed. He was one of the few defenders. I am a big defender. I think what Bernanke did. I mean, and and by the way, do you know why he did what he did? And he says so in the. He doesn't say directly. He I blames
1: do. Congress for not doing anything. You know, but he
2: blames them. But if you, there's one part of the Fed on on Milton Friedman's 90th birthday party. He was I the recall. Speaker. We won't do it again. We won't make that mistake again. He looked at Milton and said, you showed us what we did wrong in the Great Depression of the 30s. And thanks to you, we will not make this mistake again. Now, this was in 2002. There was no subprime mortgages. There was no crisis coming. There was nothing. And he said, we will not make that mistake again. Now, Milton passed away two years after that in 2004. So Mm -hmm. he never lived to see it. But don't you think that when Lehman went under and the, all the financial markets seized up in panic that that pledge did not come to mind in Bernanke I've got to act I've had I know I'm going to get flack for bailing out AIG and he did huge I'm gonna take that that's, that's I, I think I think the title of the book he had the courage to act I said I'm going to get flack but in I I've got I've got to do it
1: he could have called it a promise to keep. Based yeah, on, uh, a promise on that. to
2: keep. He looked at Milton Friedman and said, "We're not going to make that mistake. I'm not going to let this whole system go and down that's the drain."
1: The di- that's the difference between the 0809 and the Fed reaction. and the
2: 2932. We, fi- we had a five. We had 5.9 percent drop in GDP from you know oh. Uh, let Let's call to it October 09. 07. To yeah, we had a 26 drop percent drop in GDP. Much worse. Yeah. So you think the Fed
1: basically stepped in? Did what had to be done. did, and prevented the next Great Depression. I absolutely do. Absolutely do. So let let me ask you the fiscal question, because Bernanke has made some really surprising comments in his book, or at least the excerpts I've read. He's a lifelong Republican who basically said moderate Republican right now. He said, these guys, I don't recognize this party anymore. I know. I'm, well, I'm
2: more people are saying that I mean, I, I'm, I'm an independent now. I, I understand. And, well, and that
1: he's and he also thought that, yeah, the the Congress should have enacted a much more robust fiscal response, but essentially kicked the can down the road.
2: Uh, well, don't you know, to the you had one stimulus side, fiscal, in 08. Yeah, you had, you know, there, there's. He doesn't stress that too much. again, I haven't finished everything in the book, and I'm reading it really carefully. Um, I think what he did was far more important. Uh, I mean- Than the fiscal side. Than the fiscal side. Basically saving, backing up all the money market funds, right. backing up all the uh, 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 bank accounts of businesses and the demand deposits out there and all the deposits. Not one deposit went under the way it did in the Great Depression when 20,000 banks well, went we, under.
1: We now have FDIC insurance, so yeah, that really- But he went even beyond concern. that. Right. Don't forget, we only had hundred thousand actually right? insurance. They actually. raise the limits.
2: Yeah, and they raise it, but even then, he said, "I'm not going to – because look at businesses have have to have a, a, a payroll that's more than two hundred fifty thousand. Sure, sure. These big So he made sure of that. I mean, we could go on and on and on. This thing, I remember. You might remember. Oh, people, I remember. I know two huh. people are saying, "Jeremy, get a safe deposit box." And some people say, "Don't even get it in the bank." Buy a safe, get your money out, get the cash out. I mean, th- there was crazy talk going on. Uh, uh, people were a uh, full-blown yes. panic. There's panic. no, no that doubt would have Do you know what that would have done to our financial system? I don't even want to begin to think.
1: You know, everything had froze up, and what the Fed managed to do was thaw that and force the banks to start giving each other
2: credit back and forth. Well, he, he enabled them. He flooded them with enough reserves saying— you know, I'm going to give you the facility to get all the credit you need to, and the liquidity. They all right. wanted liquidity. And they said, okay, you need a trillion dollars of liquidity? Bang, there it is. That's what QE's was. Basically, right. I'm going to give you all the liquidity you want so that hopefully you'll make some loans with this and we can keep our economy coming back.
1: And that's, and that's more
2: or less what happened. And that's more or less what happened.
1: So so you are a terrible libertarian if for saying that. Well, although, but to, you're, you're a pragmatist. Uh, Rand
2: Paul, I'm a terrible libertarian. But you're I'm, a pragmatist. I, I, I think- had Milton Friedman lived,
1: right, he would have it, said it, that's what you would have, have to said,
2: do. Bernanke, now he wouldn't agree 100 percent with absolutely everything. He said,
1: yes. The bulk of it. Well, look, it, it. if you go back and look at what he wrote about the Great Depression, what Milton Friedman wrote, it was pretty clear you can't sit around and just watch uh, the whole watch thing whole, go down and say, right. ah, it'll settle itself out. But that's out. what
2: a lot of the Republicans have been, you know, when they voted against the TARP and all that, which The first time.
1: The, By the way, worst week in the market on a point basis,
2: yeah, I think ever. I don't know on a percentage basis. It's still but seven, that, 7.50, 7.75. It's the biggest point, not the biggest percentage, but the biggest point. And then
1: by that Friday, uh uh-oh, we've got to do something.
2: Well, that's it. The Republicans all got phone calls from their, just a minute here. The the people with their 401ks and all that, just a minute here. Did you see what happened when you guys voted it down? Uh, I don't think that's good. Two days later, overwhelmingly voted it for. When when the president of General
1: Electric and Ford (laughs) and McDonald's call the White House and say, hey, we're not going to make payroll.
2: Yeah. I think that really focuses uh, Well, and attention. the 770 point, so they got the public involved, and the and everyone said, and it was amazing. They made a, t- a tiny little change so the Republicans could save face, and right. then a, a half of them voted no, voted yes, it, it, two it's, days it's, later.
1: It's amazing.
2: So you mentioned some of your early
1: mentors. What investors, you mentioned Steinhardt, what other investors influenced your your philosophy your approach to thinking about
2: equities well i would have to say that i was a huge straight index fan so john bogle clearly bogle got it i remember samuelson he wrote an article when i was at graduate school gee all we want is an index fund right we didn't have one that's actually responded. you go through the history he said we need someone with an index fund and you know, Bogle answered that question. I was one of the first people to put my money in there
1: in Vanguard, in
2: Vanguard Index.
1: That, that's amazing. Yeah. Who, who else
2: influenced your thinking besides uh, Bogle? Well, I mean, I mean, again, it was the theory, and I was pretty much saying I don't see active management beating it after fees, and so all the way until the tech bubble. The tech bubble. And the work that I did when you know Jonathan Steinberg and and Michael Steinhardt called me up about you know can we have a indexing. better a fund can we do a better indexing rather than get overweight that became my. So 2,000 theme. really, that really that had a big me. impact on That you. hit me on a cap. I mean, that Plus, I, theoretically, I hear I had to hold this cap way with 40% in technology, that a P of 200. I said, I don't want to hold it, but then I break my philosophy. How can rules. I redo it?
1: So uh, markets are efficient until human behavior makes them crazy. <laughs> yeah. your, your buddy Bob Schiller would say they're efficient until mo-
2: people get involved. Yeah, well, you know, it's. If they're still not easy to beat. Let's put it that way. Sure. and That's why, obviously, active managers after fees don't really beat it. There's a Over lot of long smart... periods
1: of time, it's, it's impossible. It, it, it is to... almost
2: impossible. But there is a tendency, and it really goes back to what, uh, you know, I mean, in a way, you know, Buffett says people tend to overdo the growth stocks. And value stocks are not interesting. They tend to. That's why when we do... 70 80 year studies on risk return and that was something a Fama French found mm-hmm. right in their research that on uh, that value stocks which is what a fundamental weighting system would tend to overweight mm-hmm. do better than growth stocks on a risk return basis when you go back over you know 50 so, 60 years
1: so you mentioned Fama French I'd be remiss if I didn't point out they are advisors to dimensional funds and dimensional funds yes. Big focus yes. is the small cap premium over long periods of time. Yes. Before before I go on with the rest my last few questions, what, what are your thoughts on small cap premium, value premium, momentum premium are, are some of the big yeah. and quality premium as well. Yeah, now as... there's
2: quality and momentum, which I have at the end of these are like in the last few years comparison. Yes. The value goes way back. I right. mean the value premium, you know, Palmer right. French stuff in the mid 90s or even earlier. Uh, showed that value premium., uh, that's back and, to Benjamin Graham, and yeah, and, 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 way and back. that's really and uh, uh, and and I remember Buffett said people are hardwired. They rather they don't like boring stocks. They tend to undervalue them. They like the growth story. they want to ride them up and they ride them too high right And you know, well, it uh, makes
1: for a great cocktail party,. Chad. yeah,
2: exactly. you want to you want to own the Microsofts and all the big ones that have gone way way. Now
1: ahead. it's the apples and the Teslas yeah, it's and always the, it's
2: hardwired into the people's brain. So I definitely, you know, I mean, I definitely understand that uh, the small stock premium is a little bit about liquidity and transaction costs. And one good thing DFA did is that they were able to actually it took them a while, by the way, in their early years, they weren't successful. They learned how to become a trading Yes, uh, they have an unbelievable, they That's how they up, did it. They're able actually to make the market. They're incredibly efficient at buyers making, of, that's right. of, of illiquid and that's stocks. that's what's enabled them to make that slice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But and, there is, so there. there's
1: a liquidity premium and there's not a lot of coverage on a lot of these small yeah, stocks. Yeah, that's it. So probably, they're unknown.
2: Look, liquidity is also there. I think illiquid, we know that illiquid assets of any sort get discounted in price if you're Mm -hmm. a long-term holder that becomes a favorable thing you know this whole thing now on quality and momentum there is evidence but you know more and more people are i think more and more people are riding they ride the train and that's when you get these sharp right uh, movements oftentimes oh they break through the they break through the 200 day moving average or they break through the the channel uh, yeah everyone just uh, gangs up on a
1: so let's talk about that because you have a chapter in stocks for the long run on, on technical on technical analysis. Yeah, I, I know you think that that long term trend and momentum is valid, but you're not really a big fan of the chart patterns.
2: Well, you know, I I said to myself, "Come on, I'm going to do a complete stuff on stock. I got to do a chartist," and I actually did an exhaustive test of the 200-day moving average uh-huh. in there uh, on uh, the Dow Jones and on Nasdaq, uh-huh. and my my fa- my final conclusion was um, after transactions costs, because you're going to be going in and out and all that, and you need a band to go in and out and et cetera and so on. it, It turns out on a risk return basis, it's not much different than buy and hold. Right. The difference is though, if you follow 200 day moving averages, it does keep you out of the worst bear markets. Now you say, why doesn't it do better? Because a lot very of years noisy. you get whipsawed, right? And my years friend, uh, you get whipsawed in like in 2002 or I forget which year. It there's was. a few of them. Sure, there's a few of them where you're going above the average. You you buy, you know you buy, you go below and you sell and buy and sell and you're at the end of the year you're exhausted with transactions right. costs that are huge.
1: My um, my buddy Meb Faber who yeah. was on the show said, "Don't use the 200 day. It's too whippy. It's too noisy. Use the 10 month. Essentially the same." Place, but not a, you get a signal
2: once a month instead. But you instead also of every got day. to know you got to have a. a but that band. also can
1: whipsaw you, you as can, well. You
2: also need a band. Don't forget mm-hmm. the two hundred day. If 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 you, I I picked a one percent band when you're one percent above and below because if you take, whenever you go above, you may go above and below fifty times in one day. Right. When if you really compute it, so you got to have a band, otherwise you're going to go right. crazy. And
1: and we found over time you got to use closing prices,
2: especially yes. these days. Yes. yes. With flash crash and what and have I you. And I did closing. I did on the basis of closing prices. Right. So, so you you basically. So I, what I say is, you know what? I mean, it's something you can do, but realize there are going to be some years are going to really be whipsawed. And by the way, it's not so much difference than buying puts on the market. Well you do also How much puts do you buy? Are you well, marrying a one percent? I'm or- just saying when I looked at the distribution of annual returns on a two hundred day moving average, right? It didn't differ so much if I just kept on buying puts, protecting me against downside, but I keep on getting the drag. But you have a cost. You've got the real, real cost, the drags. Cost. Right. That's almost like the, the whip sawing cost right. uh it it doesn't come every year and then it comes in bunches right but it gave uh when you looked at the distribution so what happens it, it wh- cut off the bottom right you know so it, it avoided the bad things right but it dragged the distribution all the way to the when left. do you buy I, the puts relative to well the- i you know i just said it looked like a centered one I, I you know basically i just said you know, buy a put at ten percent under the market every year for fifty percent of your portfolio, oh, you whatever go. it is. Some sort of. So you could play with that. You and come can play up, with that. So it's an insurance and that cost. like the two hundred day moving average gotcha.
1: without buying it. Oh, that's that's quite interesting. Let's talk about books. You you're the author of three books. Right. Um, what books have you read, fiction or nonfiction, that you thought were interesting, influential, or that you just enjoyed? You're reading Ben Bernanke's book right now. What yeah. else have
2: what else really stayed with you well you know it, it's interesting um I'm reading Ben Bernanke's book right now uh I tend to read nonfiction mm-hmm. my wife is the fiction reader same here uh <laughs> so I enjoy books like investment biker which, uh, oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I enjoy Jim Brooke, Rogers, Jim Rogers, and I read his books, and I've I read others, and I read a lot of the historical books, um, that has to do generally in the markets. Um,
1: such as give me, give me one of your favorites. Oh,
2: god, um, let's see the one who wrote on the short seller, uh, names, uh, famous short seller, that, uh, reminiscence the, of a stock, yeah, opera? yeah, uh-huh. yeah, things like that. I, I read, um, Uh, uh, I tend to go back and and sometimes read articles as they were written back when. Mm -hmm. So I go back, and I look at the internet, what were people saying at that time? And I have some quotes on my first chapter of Stocks for the Long Run has a lot of quotes of what people were saying. I
1: just was thumbing through it earlier today and
2: I saw the 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 quote
1: of somebody calling you a bad name yeah right in the right in 2000 just as the floor so was about I, to the come the first chapter
2: i give three quotes and the one the last quote was someone told me about this they said dad jeremy did you hear um you know uh cnbc today i said no well they were talking about stocks for long run and they had a call in and the, the caller person, that's right a call in said stocks for a are you crazy? Oh, I have that book and all it is good for now is a doorstop. <laughs> that's right. I put that quote in there. I, I do not great. mind making fun of myself. You but know mean, what? But I meanwhile, don't. here we are, we're,
1: it's 15 years later and we're substantially above where to we were way in, in that period. Um, so you've been a participant in markets, you've been a participant in the, the philosophy, the thinking, the ideas that drive markets. You mentioned almost 50 years. Almost. 50. What do you think are the most significant changes that you've seen over that arc of time?
2: Obviously, the development of index funds. No doubt about that. Uh, we we definitely, uh, I think, is important there. I think um, obviously the big bang when when commissions became deep. Competitive instead for, of fixed. for you
1: youngins, commissions used to be fixed. Yeah, at that high was levels. changed in the early '70s. Schwab yeah, was yeah. actually the first right. to come out and slice
2: fees, yeah. and suddenly yeah. you had a competitive marketplace for brokerage services. Yeah, I think that that was extremely important. Uh, I also think the development of index futures, mm-hmm. um, where people you see could take a direction on the market. Now people like the spider. Right. Now that came much much later. Uh, and they do the mini, maybe if they right. want to do on that. But there was, you know, that that development was the first time that you could, you know, without going into the index fund, which was, you know, Bogle you can, didn't want you to trade it. You, you, you could move it, a big chunk of money cash and in and out, in and out, and hedge yourself. Right. With the entire very market easily. index, I thought that index futures, um, which was I think in the very early eighties, like 81, 82, was also a very significant development. And, and and generally, I mean, obviously, we've got the globalization of the markets, uh, free capital movements, free exchange rates that allow, you know, very few firms have capital restrictions if right. they certainly want to be part of the global economy. Back then, even the United States had restrictions right. uh, back in the 50s and 60s. So the freedom of the market to go globally, I think, is critical. Um, yeah, I think that those were things. The index fund was obviously- These are creative. all very- I do think fundamental indexing is another huge breakthrough. Um, These are all positive changes. All positive changes. A- anything
1: that you see that, that you think is negative, high-frequency trading, derivatives, anything along those
2: lines? Or have they when kind they've of done, been contained? Well, you know what? When they've done away- Okay, so not that I like the specialists because- There were complaints about them all the time. But one thing they would not have let- Some of these blue chips sell $10 less than the market. Right. Or or $40. Or whatever whatever it was. With a flash crash in 2010 or this very recent one, we're doing better. They, what they screwed up was the open. It was actually the opening. Actually, the flash crash of 2007, they put safeguards in these mini stops right. that were good. The trouble is that they weren't effective at the open. And that's why we had a mini crash at the we open. We had an ETF it, crash uh,
1: earlier We've also this, had right. the,
2: we had an ETF crash a little bit on those. Flash One, crash. I don't want to overstate that because people get all upset. Mm-hmm. And when we look at the number of trades at a crazy price, it's 0.0000001%. But it's what everybody's
1: price shows. Shows up. People say, "How? Why is Johnson and Johnson no, yeah. nine cents?" Well, there, so there was a
2: hundred shares of J and J that sold at that. Uh, you know, and don't forget they unwound the crazy, real crazy right. ones before. But even you know, in this recent one, so there were one or two hundred shares at crazy prices. Right. They still got to work on that at the open, and I think they will to prevent that. We have pre- prevented some of those big gaps since two thousand. Listen, we are in an instantaneous communication world. Mm-hmm. It's going to. Uh, rumors are going to start. I sometimes wonder whether, you know, with all the Facebook and the social media... Twitter, of course. You know, whether we're we're going to get some rumor that's going to be false, that's going to panic everyone. We've seen that happen. It, We've seen I know, that happen already. I mean, and it, you know, back at the time, the news people would wait to verify it. Doesn't happen. Uh, that isn't happening. We could get some sharp movements, but I guess... Honestly, that comes with the territory. of communication is basically good. I don't want to restrict so, it in any way. So
1: you see things generally all these innovations have been improvements over time that work to the to the benefit of yeah. investors. Yes. Wow, that's quite fascinating. Um any major shifts you see coming up? I know you think fundamental indexing is is one of them. What what else do you see coming up?
2: You know, that's that so much has happened. I don't know whether I'm looking for anything. I mean, we, we've, you know, we've got ETFs in commodities uh, right now. ETFs in the foreign markets right now, and I think ETFs are also. I should say ETFs are. I'm going to include that as one of the break, huge,
1: breakthroughs. Huge, huge innovations.
2: So we're pretty much we're pretty much doing that. Uh, you know, whether we could actually get ETFs in real estate as. Uh, Beyond REITs, you mean yeah, like real? Yeah, beyond REITs. It's mm-hmm. really hard to do that though because you can't arbitrage if you can't easily in and out to arbitrage right. to be a creation unit.
1: In other words, you you're buying
2: enough of the underlying right. stock to make right. one more ETF
1: share. Right. Right. You can't really do that because it's not as liquid. It right. doesn't trade. Um, last two questions. These yep. are these are always uh, interesting. Um, you work with kids. You work with college students and and grad students. What sort of advice would you give, or do you give, to millennials who are graduating at the beginning of their career if they were interested in going into
2: finance? Well, there's a lot of different ways to go into finance. Mm-hmm. Do what I do is academics. Mm-hmm. Um, is is is. I just say read read widely, current events. Try to understand a structure. Take course. Try to fit things into a paradigm that you feel comfortable in analyzing it. That's it, building building a structure at which you can think about the markets. And then when a new situation comes up, you'll have a structure to analyze it in. But the wealth of experience, start young. I Yeah, actually, as I said, I was fascinated with the stock market when I was a kid. And not so much which stocks to buy, but the whole movements of the market up or down. Mm-hmm. Why did it move up or down? Why did it, the, and, I always try to say, can I learn enough to get a structure of thinking about the major factors that do it? So, you know, read as much as you can. Current events, take those courses that you can. Um, and, 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 and definitely take a global view. The world is, is global now. And, uh, you know, it's not just the United States or England. or It's global. It's the whole world. And my last question, what do you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you started out 44 years ago? Ooh, and I wish that I knew when I started out 44 years ago. Um, I wish, um, that I was, again, I was wedded to cap weighted Mm -hmm. at the same time I said tech was crazy. And I didn't know how to reconcile those two. Now I can do a fundamentally weighting. I can get out of a sector that I think is overweighted or overweight in a sector that I think is really cheap. Now, not dramatically. I don't think I'm the greatest timer in all that. But just looking at valuations, once they get to an extreme, you may not buy at the bottom, you may not sell at the top. But I think that you can really move better than buy and hold i think fundamental weighting is one way that does it for you by the rebalancing technique
1: so so in a, in a situation like 2000
2: you don't want to be overweighted.
1: the most expensive sector yeah. the biggest stocks yeah. and them.
2: that'll be the biggest part of my portfolio yeah so you know if i were in you know a fundamentally weighted my uh, they would have been selling the technology because its price kept on going up relative to its fundamentals And I would have been much better off rather than suffer through the 2002. Even though I knew it was overrated, I was kind of locked into the cap waiting. Professor Siegel, I I can't begin to thank
1: you enough. This has been absolutely delightful. I I appreciate all your time and and generosity in sharing your- Well, it's been a
2: pleasure, Barry. Well, well, Maybe
1: we'll do it again sometime. I, I would love to- We've been speaking with Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, author of Stocks for the Long Run. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up or down an inch on iTunes and you can see all of the other uh, chats we've had with various people over the years. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't, in fact, If I did not thank my engineer, Reggie, Charlie Vollmer, my uh, producer, and my head of research, Michael Batnick, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.